You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 458, Parturition. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. On each episode of Mission Log, you'll find the two of us navigating our way through sometimes dangerous conditions where we get to know each other a little better, find common ground, and see if at the end of the day there's a message to be found in those episodes of Star Trek that we watch. This week, Parturition. The one where Neelix becomes a godfather, or godmother, or something to a little lizard baby. But that's only after he's been something else to his girlfriend and one of his crewmates. I will be back with trivia in a moment, right after Norm tells all of you how you can reach all of us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at missionlogpod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, after a quick change of clothes after our angel hair pasta spaghetti fight, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. All right. This week's episode was written by Tom Solosi. It's interesting that Tom's uh, pro writing career starts in the late 70s with comedies like Three's Company and then transitions quite easily into the popular action and sci-fi shows of the day where he really spent most of his time. Although he only has two Star Trek writing credits, this episode and the Voyager season one episode, The Cloud, he worked his way around shows like The Incredible Hulk and Knight Rider, amazing stories in the A-Team. The only other time we mentioned him, we also pointed out that he wrote the unfairly overlooked feature film, Three O'Clock High. So even though Tom gets the only credit on this episode, it was really Michael Piller who did a full rewrite. He was the one concerned about a few aspects of Voyager that needed attention. One, he wanted a show that focused on Tom Paris since we hadn't had one in a while. Also, Michael was very concerned about giving the Neelix jealousy story or Neelix as comedy relief plot lines a bit of a rest. So that's what you do in a situation like this. You got Michael to churn out some of that classic pillar filler around which to reconstruct an episode. This was directed by Jonathan Frakes. And even though Jonathan is so well seated in our minds as a director, he only helmed three episodes of Voyager. This is the second one, preceded very recently by Projections. And incidentally, this episode was completed well before Projections was aired. Time to play that title game. Well, the word you will hear us stumbling all over today, because frankly it's not used very often, is parturition. And that means childbirth or the act of giving birth to a child, to be more precise. So there. And let's talk about our guest stars. While this isn't technically a bottle show, 
is very close. Our time is spent on board Voyager and then on the Standing Planet set, also known as Planet Hell, backstage during the TNG days. With a minimum of new expenditures, there was also a minimum of guest stars, as in none. There is a puppet reptile baby and its alien parent, the latter of which was played by Alan Shaw. Alan was uncredited here for his one day on set. He has just a couple of other professional credits from the late 90s and wrapping up in the early 2000s with an appearance on Angel and in the time travel comedy film Just Visiting. Welcome to Tom Paris Flight School, home of the Paris Maneuver since 2347. Prologue. Cass is in trouble, and perhaps in more ways than one. Her shuttle is under attack, and as she attempts to diagnose the proper repair orders, a very calm and cheeky Tom Paris just sits back with a wry smile and watches. Turns out this is just a training simulation, and one that isn't quite over, as a burst of turbulence knocks Cass off her feet and into Tom's arms. After a brief yet very uncomfortable pause between them, Cass engages evasive maneuvers, completes the scenario, exits the holodeck with Tom, carrying on and laughing all the while, and unaware of Neelix's gaze from behind them as he's hiding around the corner. On the bridge, Commander Chakotay has good and bad news for the captain. Good news? Long-range scans may have found a planet with a possible food source to solve their replenishment concerns, which are increasingly dire. Bad news is that planet Hell, nicknamed that way because you know, is a day away, and those same scans, although promising, aren't still facting conclusive about said food source. Either way, Janeway believes it's a risk worth taking, so she orders a court set for Planet Hell. Act 1. Dropping by Harry's for a brief visit, Tom is treated to both a consultation and a show, as his visit interrupts Harry's clarinet practice. Tom confesses that he may have very strong fallen-in-love type feelings for Kess, Harry advises his friend to tread carefully, citing an old Chinese expression, stay out of harm's way. Meanwhile, Neelix and Kess sit down to a romantic candlelight dinner, and while Kess regales Neelix with the excitement of her day, she can't help but feel an ever-growing tension happening between them. As Voyager arrives at Planet Hell, Chakotay and Janeway begin their analysis of the planet. Just then, the EMH chimes in and admits that he has a few suggestions for the away team's welfare even though he admits that he has to eavesdrop on certain conversations at times because he's constantly left out of the loop. Somewhat taken aback by this breach of privacy, Janeway encourages the doctor to knock it off, in so many words. And Balana doesn't have any better news because she informs the captain that EM disturbances on the planet makes transporters and comm systems inoperable. Walking into the mess hall, Tom and Harry spot Kess sitting alone just as she spots them and waves them over. After a brief yet very tense moment with Neelix serving them Alfarian hair pasta, Tom and Harry find an empty table near Kest, and just as they are about to sit, Harry is called away to the bridge. Tom is soon confronted by Neelix, who after a few choice words, throws Harry's pasta dish all over Tom, who responds in kind. Now, with the both of them completely covered in pasta and sauce, the two brawl across the tables and the floor of the mess hall only to be broken up by Captain Janeway over comms, ordering them to her ready room, as is. And that's Starfleet for 
right now. Standing in front of the captain with pasta literally sloughing off of them, Tom and Neelix are ordered by an obviously exasperated Captain Janeway to put whatever differences they have aside, act like the professionals they are, and find the food source the ship so desperately needs down on the planet. Act 2. In the briefing room, Tom and Neelix are seated uncomfortably close to one another, as Bellana informs the senior staff that the transporter is still unable to penetrate the planet's atmosphere. Harry adds that occasional windows between the EM disturbances will allow them to beam up supplies, but the timing is unpredictable for the moment. After the meeting, Harry and Tom stride past a very emotionally distraught Kess. Even Neelix tries to waltz past her, telling her that they will discuss things when he returns. Things as in Kess wanting to know why Tom and Neelix were fighting in the first place. After returning to sickbay to attend her duties, the doctor notices that Kess is frustrated and, as he is wont to do, points out Kess's obvious change in behavior. She admits that the fight between Tom and Neelix has upset her and feels powerless to do anything about it. The doctor explains that even though she may be too immature to see it, Tom, even though he appears to be just a friend, is in fact enamored with her. The doctor reassures her that this is in no fault of her own and it will resolve itself in its own way, even if she can't cure what is happening herself. Meanwhile, on the shuttle, personal tensions between Tom and Neelix are uncomfortably high, as neither of them can stand being in the same space with each other. Jockeying for a position with insult after innuendo, one thing gets both of their attention immediately— a warning from the shuttle's computer that cascades very quickly into a series of malfunctions, which forces Tom to make an emergency landing on planet Hell. Tuvok picks up the shuttle's emergency distress beacon, but Torres still can't use the transporters to beam either Tom or Neelix out of danger. Act 3. Although the shuttle impacted on the surface, both Neelix and Tom are alive and respectively uninjured. Paris knows that the EMS pulse was sent, so Voyager is looking for them. However, both Neelix and Tom sense the itchiness of the trigemic vapors which are leaking through the compromised and damaged hull. After spraying themselves with the doctor's anti-trigemic vapor salve, Tom orders Neelix to pack up whatever they can carry and head out onto the planet to find food and shelter amidst the terrain. Upon finding a cave, they use their phasers to seal themselves in and to heat several rocks for warmth. Meanwhile on Voyager... Harry pays Kess a visit and tries to assuage her fears about Tom, Neelix, and their crashed shuttle. After bolstering her spirits, Harry is about to leave Kess's as Voyager comes under attack by a ship that has taken a defensive posture between the planet and Voyager. Chakotay believes that the ship may be protecting something on the planet itself. Back in the cave, after sufficient taunting and badgering at each other's character, Tom and Neelix detect steady but faint life signs nearby. And, after venturing deeper inside the cave, they come across what appears to be three large eggs, one of which hatches before their very eyes. Act 4. Huddled around Harry's op station, Balana, Chakotay, Harry, and Captain Janeway formulate a plan to try and position Voyager closer to the surface of the planet to reduce the range of the transporters once a window of opportunity opens within the EM disturbances. As Harry begins to work on his solution, Janeway walks over to Tuvox, who texts a lot of the tech with her and Chakotay to find a way to use minimal force to neutralize the nearby alien vessel, 
and after several attempts to disarm the enemy vessel with said minimal force, one last volley of photon torpedoes disables the alien's weapon and control systems, allowing Janeway to continue with her rescue mission. After a thorough scan of the hatchling, Tom is able to determine that it is in fact a type of humanoid, cold-blooded, reptilian, and with a high probability of being sentient based on the size of its brain. Neelix posits that if it is in fact sentient, then it is also highly probable that its mother would soon return in the due course of time. However, Tom and Neelix are at a crossroads about the baby. Do they leave it behind as if they were never there as Tom suggests? Or do they take it with them as Neelix wants for fear of its mother rejecting it because they have already tampered with it and the nest? They both notice that it is also interested in eating Neelix's coat because it's covered with trigemic vapor residue, which they soon realize is the planet's natural protein-rich food source occurring for the infant reptiles, and the same food source that they cut off when they collapsed the entrance of the cave. Time to move some rocks. Act 5. After escaping the cave and returning the infant to the protein-rich atmosphere of the trigenic vapors, Neelix fears that they are too late, as the baby reptile appears to be too weak to even breathe in the vapors for nourishment. Neelix wants to try Cordrazine, but Tom thinks it's just too strong a drug. Unless he feeds the baby reptile like he did a baby bird which fell out of a nest near the windowsill of his bed, which he saved in a similar way when he was a kid. And using the hypospray as the proverbial medical eyedropper, the baby reptile's vital signs immediately improve, as do Tom's and Neelix's attitudes towards one another. As they wait for the baby reptile's mother to return, both Tom and Neelix clear the air between them. Tom admits that he does have feelings for Kess, but respects Neelix for what he and Kess have together. Tom also goes as far as saying that Neelix may not even realize just how much Kess loves him and adores him, and Neelix admits in kind that perhaps his overzealous jealousy and pettiness towards Tom wasn't warranted, but it just got the better of him. Suddenly, Janeway's voice breaks through the EM static and tells Paris that their window to beam them back to Voyager is open. However, Neelix pleads with the captain to let them stay a little longer just to see how the mother will react to the reptilian infant they discovered. Janeway stresses that they are pressed for time, not knowing when the next EM window will occur. But Neelix is steadfast, and after taking cover behind a rock structure, both he and Tom watch as the baby reptile's mother arrives and accepts the child without hesitation, save one, an aggressive posture towards the godparents, who then call for an emergency beam-out. Safely back aboard Voyager, it seems that Tom and Neelix have left their angst behind them on the planet below, as they, along with a very relieved Kess, stride down the corridor arm-in-arm, and with Neelix offering to open a very special bottle of Patak Cold Fowl, a very rare and special drink that he prefers sipping in the company of good friends. The end. Norman, good job as always, and I'm very, very pleased that you got in the phrase, well, well, really the the moment that I was looking for, which is you said that with uh, Neelix and Tom, they were in the cave, and after sufficient taunting... They, they, they're needed. Look, we couldn't have too much taunting, couldn't have too little taunting. They got the right amount of taunting. Glad you pointed that out in the recap. 
I mean, if anything, I'll be fair about my critiques. So I mm-hmm. actually did time the amount of taunting that was happening. Oh, good. And uh, I do believe that maybe Robbie was given a second or two more than Ethan, but mm. I'll have to double-check my stopwatch. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Well, okay. what do we got today in observation in, of parturition? <laughs> in less seriousness, uh, yes. the title game. Let's do the title game, John, because sure, you brought sure. this up in trivia. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's kind of like go through a couple this season where titles and their relevance to the story make a lot of sense. The oh, 37s, sure. oh, right? Oh, yeah, because from 1937, if I recall correctly. Yep. And yes, and let's see, non sequitur, even though Ooh. it was a non sequitur, it's still non sequitur. Still, it followed, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Projections, the doctor projecting as a projection, that oh. all kind of tracks, right? Absolutely, yeah. So, knowing what we know of this episode, how do you feel about. The choice of parturitions. I mean, it was childbirth too difficult a concept or a word to, to you know, obviously it's, I'm having difficulty with it. I, so. you know what? Uh, this is a word that will haunt me because every single time I go to write it, I write it incorrectly and have to check myself. Um, I have to remind myself how to say it. And then childbirth really is that the most important thing in this episode? Um, I, uh, no, I, no. I'm just, Right? (laughs) No. Literally, like, Spaghetti Fight would have been more relevant. Spaghetti Fight. That, okay, from now on, if you say, hey, do you remember Parturition? I'll be like, no, no, no. Do you remember Spaghetti Fight? Yes. I remember that episode very well now. I I will say this. I mean, kind of the classic Star Trek thing to open with a simulation to fake you out. This one isn't really trying to fake you out. Like, you you know what it is. You know what's happening, that Kess is learning, and that's kind of cool. And then I absolutely hate the idea of Tom Paris being known for his dirty tricks, and he knows that he's known for his dirty tricks. And then the embrace, the awkward embrace. I mean, I know it's the setup, but oof, when we're just layering cliche upon cliche, it, it hurts right from the top. I'll tell you what, John. After a long flight, there's nothing like landing in Paris. <laughs> or perhaps this well is the, what we yeah. Is this what we call the Paris Maneuver? The Paris Maneuver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. E- evasive action. Yeah. Paris Maneuver <laughs> 1. <laughs> like cat's evasive action maneuver. Anything. Yeah, I know, right? right. right. Yeah. Right. Hey, we have a new hairstyle for Captain Janeway. We do, and I feel weird mm-hmm. a little bit pointing that out because it was such a, a point of interest with network executives and everybody's very concerned about Kate's hair as Janeway, but um, I, it, it's great. And, you know, cool. Like, I'm glad they found this one uh, because, yeah, she looks awesome. You know, I I did kind of (laughs) – I did sort of wonder about this. You know, the the bad news is that the the planet to potentially replenish their food supply is a full day, an entire day out of their way. They got 70 more years to go, Norman, and they're going to take a whole day to go get essential supplies like food. Right. That's a problem because because look like, like you already have been in a situation where you literally put somebody on a shuttle and just said here just just go away for a while and just find us again when you're ready. <laughs> but John, it's a full day. A full day. A full day, Norman. Twenty six hours, John. <laughs> That's right, right. To go by DS nine time. Now we did mention it, Planet Hell, and kind of the fun thing there is that it is an in joke. That is what the TNG crew named their standing planet set. So a lot of these pieces they get reused over and over. Same thing. This is all at Paramount Stage sixteen. But it, it's fun when something like that gets dropped into an episode with with sincerity. I, I like it. 
not a very optimistic sounding name for a possible food source, though. Right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> yeah, here, let's go get food at Planet That Will Kill You. Yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry Kim, his quarters, I assume that's his quarters, where he's in there practicing clarinet, and Tom just walks in. His quarters are huge. It's like his apartment back in San Francisco. That place is massive. I mean, very impressive. And then uh, in walks Tom Paris, just demanding a song. Like, just play me something, monkey grinder. I know, you know? right? Yeah. right. <laughs> very inappropriate. And then, if that wasn't inappropriate enough, Tom just dumps his problems on his friend. I mean, boundaries, dude. Come on. I'll tell you what, you know, everything that Harry did for him, mm-hmm. I mean, he, you know, he's... That's the least that Tom could, you know, do. It's just ask him for everything. Yeah. So <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, Harry's been paying attention, though. I, I do like that he brought up like something specific about Tom's behavior. Setting yourself up for rejection, you must enjoy playing the part. Ah. Very, very observant of, yeah. of Harry. Yeah. Um, also, and this is very, very observant of an Asian male watching another Asian male, or at least someone who is kind of getting it right, writing for an Asian male. Mm. Harry saved up his rations to make his clarinet because he can still hear his mom nag him about playing his clarinet 70 light years away. I I thought that was kind of adorable. Uh, You know. (laughs) I can still hear being called to the piano for violin lessons. Uh I bet. I bet. Um, What else? At the dinner table, I like that pepper grinders are still technology used in the 24th century. Uh, Space grinder. But yes, space. <laughs> yep. Yes. Yep. And uh, okay, so at timestamp 736, mm-hmm. there's an interesting bust that's over Neelix's shoulder. And it has kind of like the elongated ears of like a Buddha, but it's not a Buddha. Oh. So is it a space, space Buddha? Buddha? I like that. I like that idea, definitely. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about our old friend, the EMH. Uh, the EMH eavesdrops on senior staff discussions. Mm-hmm. How? Well, by establishing links with the ship's comm system. So. Here we go again. <laughs> the, the, the EMH. I am sorry, people. You know this is going to come up every time. The EMH is a program running on the ship's computer system, fully aware of the various components of that computer and with access to those components. Uh, it, now, the crew, the crew are just fine with the system listening for things like, you know, interpersonal communications, opening doors, giving commands, etc. But they're not so cool when it talks back to them and has a face and a personality that's you know it's very murky gray area here yeah we have we've had had uh comments or messages and emails about you know how we perceive (laughs) the emh as a an isolated program Mm -hmm. this proves that even in his isolation he's still an integrated program yes with the rest of the ship he's basically saying i can't leave sickbay but the rest of my ears can. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I am just uh, fully a part of all the ship's systems. I can make those work for me. Yeah. And by the way, though, I, I know that, you know, we're looking at the hindsight of technology being used in 1995. I get that. But mm-hmm. isn't it weird that as Chakotay and Janeway are looking down at the monitor from their Mercedes leather bucket seats, <laughs> he's looking up? Like, yeah. why would the orientation matter where he's sitting to them? So that that's what's so funny is like every now and then Star Trek will do this weird thing since Next Gen where mm-hmm. they totally play with the perspective on those monitors. And you're, you, I, I guess you could infer, and we did get emails about that too, you can infer that there's some sort of dimensional aspect to it. But realistically, we're in the audience, we're watching it, we're seeing a 
2D display and another 2D display and a tiny little pinhole camera somewhere there on it. I thought it was just very cool that the doctor had uh, staged his setup. You know, and he had that little spinning uh, the centrifuge <laughs> in awesome. front of him. Like I want to do that for every video call now. Ever, I want to want to lean back in my chair. I'm doing that now for those of you seen on the camera. Just put something in front of me. Like, oh look, you know, I'm so casual. I got a thing in front of the lens. Yeah. You would have been funny though. Is that since he's a hologram or or can turn himself into a hologram or mm-hmm. turn himself transparent? If he like leaned in and then the centrifuge just spun through him. <laughs> Right, that would be because he awesome. forgot it was there. That would have been awesome. I, uh, more about uh, the doctor. I do love. I'm a doctor, not a voyeur. Great. The, see, this is the moment when you know that you have the right actor in the right role because you can yeah. only use those "I'm a doctor" jokes uh, only so often, or else they do feel stale. They feel self-referential. But Bob just owns it, and it's so natural coming out of his mouth, and it's gold. In a scene like this. Yeah. He's owned it since Caretaker. He, he really, I really has. Ha- yeah, a- absolutely. I-, I love Harry saying to Tom, like, a Moliere comedy will cheer you up. <laughs> Nerd. Uh, <laughs> um, and then, now, you mentioned the Alfarian hair pasta. I mean, look, it- it's angel hair, and angel hair is a great form of pasta to have. Uh, Neelix, though, is serving up a lot of that pasta per portion. That That is like a John Champion portion of that pasta. Well, ma- yeah. Is this where the rest of Janeway's hair went? Like <laughs> Maybe. In, is, Maybe. Is Alfarian means Janeway's leftover hair in some other language? Could very well. Yep. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Waste not, want not, John. So when Harry's called away as he's sitting down to lunch with Tom, I mean, he's literally like about to just, you know, sit on the bench and then he gets called away for duty. Isn't that what having duty rotations is for? Exactly. Unless you're on Jellicoe's ship. Exactly. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Then you better eat fast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And then we get a food fight uh, just because we've never had one in Star Trek. Not like this uh, up until now where there's you know no. staining on uniforms. I wonder how many times they had to shoot that. The morale officer. I mean, come on, man. You don't you don't increase morale that way. You no. decrease morale that way. You do. Um, I'm going to strike the comment that I made. In my notes, okay, <laughs> just to be just to be on the positive side. Okay, okay, I, I will say this were uh, positive moments in that scene. The scene immediately thereafter, the spaghetti inspection moment is great for Janeway. She plays yeah, it yeah. totally right. Love her in that. And what I also love is ending that scene by saying, you know, do you have a problem? Solve it. <laughs> this this is the Janeway that I love. Brilliant. That like goes into the list of like you know that Starfleet for get out. Yes, right? yes, yeah. solve it. I like the pasta continuity from there's a giant clump of pasta that's mm-hmm. on Robbie's tunic and it's the same giant clump of pasta like literally with this red sauce in the direct center of it yep. that's in the ready room or yeah in Janeway's ready room yeah but I I'm watching that scene and I think it is taking a Herculean effort for Kate not to break yeah I know in that scene <laughs> I know now like it, it has to be extremely sticky pasta at that point mm-hmm. um, to get it to stay there but you know that's why you have a uh, postinuity officer uh, on on your set you have to make sure mm-hmm. that you know right it stays exactly the same <laughs> um, now, postinuity is important it is it is in, yeah. in anything you do I do I love the assumption in this show that they can just go grab fruit and vegetables from another planet did none of them watch The Way to Eden because that's <laughs> that's not how it works. Yeah. What we needed was Charles Napier in the uh, 
alien infant's mother's, mm-hmm. you know, oh, costume. Oh, God. Just for continuity. Great, right? yes. Uh, the death stare that Kess gave the doctor, oh. that was a good acting moment. That was a mm-hmm. good back the F off stare. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? Yep. Love that moment. Uh, don't love... Well, look, I mean, it's true, so it's not like you can love or not love it. He's stating the obvious. The EMH saying, you're only two years old. Uh. That feels weird in mm-hmm. the ears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then that is followed by a very chilly shuttle ride, and then we lose another shuttle. I feel like that, uh, that, that uh, you know, it was at uh, Fred Thompson at the end of uh, The Hunt for Red October. You mean to tell me you lost another submarine? <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, who is uh, Ensign Baytart? Because now I want to meet him. You know, That's, uh, I love the name. I want to know who they are. And please, one day show us. Neelix is sitting next to Tom, and he's like, you don't have to impress me with your techno babble. Mm-hmm. Is that the first time we've actually heard techno babble's self-referential? I think this is technically the second time, but in broadcast order, I, I want to say DS9 had it. So okay. so it, it, this could be the first time in broadcast order, but I do think it was in DS9. But it, it, it's one of those things, again, where it actually works, because you let the alien say that phrase. You know, uh, it would yeah, like it would yeah. feel faker if you had somebody from Starfleet saying that. It would just sure. a little too yeah. on the nose. You know, makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I do love you know the vapors from this planet will get to us and you know rip our skin off. So we should just leave the shuttle and go explore the planet. <laughs> I mean, yeah. How do you find cover from the air itself uh, in the planet? Y- yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I don't know. Not, mm. not a good way to do it. We'll say nice use of phasers to heat up those rocks. A very uh, enemy within moment. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It would have been funny if one of the two, like, whenever they had a transmission opening, said, hey, can you send down a pot of hot coffee? Send down a pot of coffee. <laughs> Maybe a little long rope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the scene between Harry and Kess was very effective. I think that Jennifer is a very good talking head actor. Mm-hmm. Where she's not really depending on her physicality to sell the scene. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of nuances that she had in that scene. And I thought that Garrett gave just enough sympathy towards her. I thought it was a very effective scene. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that, that may show up in a note of mine later. Now, I will say this. I have seen enough science fiction to know that you do not approach the interesting-looking alien eggs in a cave on another planet. That's just not something you do. But <laughs> but they did it. They did it. And I got to admit, that little uh, that little reptile baby is pretty cute, you know? I know. Yeah. I, I, did, I didn't. Cute. What? No, you, you're not. I look cuter than the alien lizard baby in V. See, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> no, what I was, was going to say is, like, I didn't want to, but I ended up loving mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that rubber baby prop yes because yes we know what it is yeah but you know me john i'm like i love rubber monsters always yes, yes. space 1999 hello. Bring us hello hello you are welcome mm-hmm. yeah yep yeah oh and, and plus one points for you bringing up the v baby monster because you got it man. that was the cliffhanger of v the final mm-hmm. battle like, yeah that was that's why i'm here you know, why I'm haunted here. i'm haunted by that uh, let's see so i like the the reactions when when Tom looked at the baby and then when Neelix looked at the baby, because Tom was like, what? And Neelix was like, oh. Yeah, right. They they right. had to have two different uh, reactions there. Yeah, it right. was good. And I like that in the, the span of their relationship building, 
they had these two tracks. Like Tom was actually kind of pragmatic and Neelik was a little bit more uh, paternal, emotional mm-hmm. about it. Yep. Right? Yep. And I'm wondering, you know, if it was just something that kind of like was in the back of his head that's kind of peeking forth since Elogium. Um, I did like the line... Uh, Tom's been got he's been given like a lot of really good one liners in the last couple of episodes, like in Twisted, where he said that, you know, I'm afraid, but I'll kind of like stare down my fate. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. that was a good line. Mm-hmm. And then in this one, he says the upside down mission, the upside down mission to the wrong side of the galaxy has given me a second chance and I don't tend to blow it. I like that. Yeah. Agreed. You know, I, I thought that was cool. Agreed. Agreed. All right, John. So I have a very I, I like ending our notes on. Either a question or a serious note or a question of a serious note. <laughs> so Patak Cold Foul. Is this the album name for today? Oh, my God. Okay. I, I think you're right. He said it, and all I could think was, uh, what is that terrible wine, uh, Cold Duck? So, yeah, mm. I think that is a really good album name. Yeah. All right. Is it better than Pureed Nut Frosting or Subatomic Particle Shower? What do you think? What do you think, audience? Yo, Neelix's palms are sweaty. Knees weak. Arms are heavy. There's sauce on his sweater already. Tom's spaghetti. We will get right back to parturition in a moment after a word from this week's sponsor. And hey, that sponsor is you. As all of you who have joined us at Patreon and in turn have joined us on the Mission Log Discord and you've enjoyed the uh, the benefits and perks contained therein, like, oh, I, I don't know, what kind of benefits do they get? Well, you have the benefit of being in the great company of all of the people that have come to Patreon and, subscri- and subscribed and created this incredible community. The benefit of being able to share incredible ideas with people, to share your fandoms, to be yourself, to be able to share exactly what you like, when you like, how you like it with people that can appreciate it for the uniqueness that you bring. And I think that that's the wonderful thing about being able to share who we are and what we love in a very, very safe and, uh, and supportive community. Yeah, I kind of look at it this way, you know, come to Patreon Mission Log for the for the cool swag, come for the early access to the shows or the behind the scenes videos, come for that, but really, truly stay for the Discord mm-hmm. conversation. I, I sort of feel like when I get burnt out on the vastness and sometimes awfulness of social media, Discord is there for great conversations and an enthusiastic audience that is made up of all of you, it's made up of all of you who have joined us at Patreon. Patreon.com slash mission log. So that is your key to get into the mission log discord where there is just all kinds of fun, exciting and enlightening conversation happening. So I do want to thank all the most recent patrons who have joined us at patreon.com slash mission log, Matt, Stuart, Sean, Kale, Scott, Mark, Brandon. Thank you all so much for joining us there and jumping into the discord to become part of the conversation. If you'd like to join again, that address is patreon.com slash mission log we will see you there mm-hmm. all right norman um mm. uh, so many things to deal with in this episode but front and center we got neelix now we've had this run of episodes where i feel like you know coming out of season one we felt like okay what what are we doing with neelix here he he's just kind of being the goofy comic relief he shows up on the bridge with canapes and then we get hit with the the duet parallel mm-hmm. and and we really got some depth out of 
Neelix. And we felt like, oh, okay, this is going to inform who he is going forward. And then we took this other turn where it got ugly and it just became about his jealousy and this sort of very misplaced uh, anxiety and rage and all these other things that are under him that are making him very unappealing. And it just feels like a way to drum up a little drama with a character they didn't quite know what to do with. And here we are with him again, front and center, to try to finally figure out what to Mm -hmm. do with him. We had these interesting aspects, these heavy aspects of Neelix. And it speaks back to this uh, uh, email that we got a long time ago, right when we had first started Voyager, saying, you know, Neelix is the clown who is crying on the inside. And and that really got driven home in some places. And I feel like they undid a lot of that work. Now, I'm going to posit something here that maybe, just maybe, (laughs) we're going to give the production of this episode the benefit Mm -hmm. of the doubt. Maybe, you know, maybe Neelix's behavior here is so awful because we're actually getting the audience to understand how terrible this kind of jealousy yeah. really is. All right, so I'll, I'll go with that as a premise. But then what do we actually do with it? I, I guess that's the question for me in this episode. What, uh, how, it, it, does the resolution feel earned? Does it feel satisfactory? Do you feel like the characters have learned anything? And and I'll also, you know, I have to kind of put this out there to you and to our audience as well. Was his jealousy on some level justified? Because here comes Tom saying he's got his eye on Cass, which is just weird and wrong in so many ways. He's already got the Delaney sisters. Come on. (laughs) You know? So I I feel like we, I keep going back and forth on this seesaw of my my understanding and appreciation of the emotional state of these characters and that I feel like we undermine certain things about Neelix as we have been doing for a while and then we undermine the good stuff that we've done with Paris as well. When, when it comes to Neelix at least, I, I think that the one thing that's really, really hard to reconcile is exactly what Neelix we're dealing with on an episode per episode basis because continuity with Neelix is mm. it's like you know it's it's like trying to you know what's that what's that old term it's like trying to uh you know like pin the tail of the donkey if the donkey is made out of air you know like it's just impossible <laughs> because you don't know right. exactly right. like which emotional state of this character uh, it, that it, that is going to be in this episode and that we have to take a look at and figure out if we're going to get any type of content or context from this character to at least justify how he's behaving. I like what you bring up uh, about, you know, this jealousy issue with Neelix. And yes, it Mm -hmm. is a very, it's a bad trait. It's ugly. You know, it's persistent. You know, it's obviously uh, affecting his relationship with Kess, even though I still don't really understand his relationship with Kess. I don't understand like why what happens yeah. surrounding their relationship warrants this type of visceral jealousy because it is, it's not like it's, I mean, it's seething, but it's also um, manifesting itself, you know, physically now with like, yes, the, the, there is kind of like the absurdity of the food fight, but it is literally the manifestation mm-hmm. of the boiling point of how he feels, right? He can't do anything. He can't yeah. express himself in any further terms other than physical violence. So, yeah, it's just a weird thing. It, and I have a really hard time trying to, oh, I think the uh, the term is trying to wrestle with smoke. Like it just, 
It's, it's hard mm-hmm. to try and pin down an actual cohesive cognitive thought about it because there isn't anything there to be able to connect the dots from one action to another action. And I think that Ethan is better than that. I think that his, his ability is obviously better than that. I think that Jennifer's ability is better than that. So my big question is, did the showrunners have any actual plan for him or her or them at all aside from, and you know, John, you know the business. So you get these headshots and then you create these character bios and then you put those bios out into the media and they run with it and they put them in Starlog or Cinefantastic or whatever. And this is all you know of the character from a teaser. And that's all. And it feels like that's all they have for these two characters is the headshot teaser. Well, it's interesting because, you know, this is an episode where there was a concerted effort to undo what had been done, or or at at least not undo it, but try to resolve it, try to get the characters to move past where they were. And, And I think very often you can run into a thing, like if you break down just scene by scene, whether it's a play or a TV show or a movie, in every individual scene, the actor has to play... A motivation. They, they have to play, you know, they're in an emotional state and they have a goal. They have an objective that may be conflicting with the objective of the other person in that scene. And I feel like sometimes, especially on a show like this, where if you rewind to some of the other episodes, all right, you don't have Cass and Neelix front and center. So maybe in an entire episode, you got about four or five minutes of them. What are they going to play? Okay, well, it looks like Neelix is playing Jealousy. The next time that character gets written, suddenly that's the the only thing that gets written. And the problem is, instead of actually saying, ooh, we're going to explore this idea, we're going to figure out what makes them tick, and we're going to figure out how to maybe resolve that, instead we just get this very unhealthy, very uncomfortable way to watch him be jealous. And and that's why I come back to the scene of wondering, do we resolve it in a way that feels satisfactory? Mm-hmm. Or is it just like, here's this outside circumstance that magically resolved what was going on because what was going on is actually pretty deep and pretty disturbing if you ask me i I do want to piggyback on what you said though i i absolutely will give credit where it's due the performances are Mm -hmm. great ethan phillips working with what he is given pulls the depths out of those scenes and i want to mention a couple of moments here that moment of neelix and kess at dinner in act one after the shuttle simulation that is one of those scenes where, you know, the script is something completely mundane. And then, like I was just saying, then it's up to the actors to really find the emotional heart, really find the objective and the emotion that's underneath. They absolutely nailed it. And, and I really felt for Neelix yeah. there because that that's just what's bubbling up on the inside. He hasn't said or done anything stupid there you just feel what he's feeling and there's a real strength to to a scene like that same to be said for that gamut of emotions expressed by jennifer you mentioned it earlier uh she's sharing her feelings with harry and her concern her frustration her anger like all of that in this brief moment so well played so well acted so out of context those scenes are wonderful in the context of primarily Neelix being written to have all these terrible outbursts and these terrible moments, you know, uh, where does that leave us with him? But I do like that you could feel that there was a concerted effort of trying to, like, right the ship 
in some way so that at least there's a resolution for these mm-hmm. two characters to move forward so it's not just this trope of its own tropishness of, oh, Neelix is upset with Tom and he's going to take it out on Kess because obviously she's the one to blame and not Tom. So, <laughs> you know, like... Well, can I mention one other trope here? Okay. No, go ahead. I don't mean to cut you off. There's one other trope, a trope that left me a little uncomfortable and that is... Kess's conversation with the EMH yep. and this idea of the flattery of being fought over. And that is, I'm sorry, but a very outdated concept. Now, I, I can, in the context of the show, I can see where the EMH might fall back on that because he is an entity that is just being fed literary mm-hmm. knowledge. Just like, look, here are all these stories that have been written in the past that play out like this. But it still feels a bit uncomfortable. I, I'm going to come back to that in our wrap-up because there, there's another thought that I have. I mean, but that, that doesn't make an interesting point. Um, that scene – like I've said before on shows that the scenes that usually like draw my attention are scenes that feel tonally off in the episode because they're mm-hmm. obviously there to make a point. Obviously, anything in the shuttle – or in the cave or tonally off from the rest of the episode because it's not Neelix being seethingly jealous, you know, and it's not even necessarily mm-hmm. Neelix mm-hmm. being like vehemently um, uh, irascible towards Tom. It's those moments where like there's those quiet moments where they're both kind of like now finally getting on the same page. Well, it's the same with Kess and the doctor because there's that scene in, I think it was a logium where, you know, she yells, was it a logium or it could have been one of the episodes where Neelix is, I was about to say mm-hmm. Neelix is jealous, but it's all the episodes. But he <laughs> looks at her after Tom and Kess deliver cabbage to his mess hall. He looks at her and yells at her mm-hmm. and says, you're mm-hmm. such an innocent, like you don't know anything. And that's because she doesn't. She yeah. doesn't know anything, really, about the ways yeah. of the world and certainly not the ways of the galaxy. So there's a truth to that, I think, that the doctor's trying to hit on, not hit on Kess, but to hit the mm-hmm. nail on the head of that point. Mm-hmm. And the doctor says, mm-hmm. you know, he says that I see things in Tom when he sees you that you can't see because I'm a holographic doctor with the capacity of being able to see fluctuations and blushing, you know, and heightened, mm-hmm. you know, breathing and his heart rate and his pulse rising every time he sees you. And then she says, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't get any of that. Well, why would you? It's like, all right. Yeah. Right. I right. love like these summer type blockbuster movies where you have the girl next door who's grown up to become this just incredibly gorgeous person and the boy mm-hmm. next door he notices it but doesn't really notice it because they've always been friends their entire life but then you have the high, the high school jock who sweeps in and steals his girl because he's always believed that this is his girl. They've played sports together. They've gone, you know, fishing in creeks together. They've played in mud together. You know, that kind of thing. That's Neelix and Kess. And all of a sudden, Flyboy Jock Tom comes in with his Paris maneuver and, you know, steals, tries Mm -hmm. to steal that preciousness away from from Neelix. I've basically just described like some kind of wonderful, you should go see it, you're welcome. So... (laughs) That's kind of like where this is at, though. Yeah. It's, it's a very clunky but very obvious romantic comedy that's not really working. But it's there. It's there. Well, right? I, I guess this is what we come back to in our next segment. It, it's obvious. It's there. But is it working? And is it not working if it's not working because we're not – on board with the characters or the changes in the characters or we're not on board with where they land here at the end i i guess that's the the question that we pose when we come back 
Captain, we regret to inform you that we've adopted a puppet. We'll feed it. Can we keep it? All right, Norman, we uh, we last left off <laughs> discussing <laughs> whether or not the episode holds up and how the characters hold up and if they've actually sort of found the balance that they were trying to achieve with this episode by, by maybe wrapping up this uncomfortable, strange jealousy, these dynamics that are... Um, well, to be honest, a bit unsavory for some of these characters. So we've arrived now at the part on our show where we get to put a bow on it and figure out if we think it stands up. And uh, and whether it does or not, is there a message to be learned from the episode? So Norman, how about you? I mean, th- this seems to be where we just keep going back and forth. Does it hold up? Does it work as an episode? So I need to be completely honest with the audience. And I want to say that um, in full transparency, I'm going to keep I'm keeping the very first paragraph that I wrote because I really wanted to find a way to try and, and uh, articulate how I really feel and not feel like I'm saying the exact same thing over and over and over again for every episode because a lot of these episodes have been fairly Neelix centric. But then I actually scrapped the last two or three paragraphs because I, after watching the episode a few times, I actually did change my mind about certain things. So. At the very beginning, I thought, you know, Voyager at this stage in the game, being early season two, and especially in the last few episodes in particular, the series is making it really hard for me to see certain things in a very non-critical way, because I just feel completely adrift um, and disconnected from the series, because I don't really have anything to connect to from a continuity standpoint with Neelix and Cass Mm. and I, especially their episodes, which have been many. So say the last few episodes, Elogium twisted in parturition, right? Or childbirth, if that's easier to say, it hasn't really fostered any real confidence to me about someone who wants to look forward to watching Voyager week in and week out. Mm -hmm. I'm just being honest, right? So I'm really interested in hearing from Voyager fans who were there from the beginning if they felt the same way. I'm not sure if I'm alone in this, and maybe I'm not, maybe I am, who knows. I think that I will eventually hit that episode where I'm like, I'm in. I am in it all the mm-hmm. way. I'm in it to win it with the rest mm-hmm. of you because it will yeah. happen. It happens for everybody, sometimes sooner, sometimes later, but it hasn't happened for me quite yet. Jatrell was very yeah, close. Sure. Very sure. close. But it's like, equate it to like that 250 something yard drive that you have you never golfed before you tee up you hit that drive and then you can't make a drive to save your life for love or money since that drive and that's Jatrell. they haven't been able to bring neela to that level of yeah. greatness yet yeah right but that's not to say that this episode isn't without its merits i think that robbie and ethan play off each other beautifully and i'll give this episode credit for that because Forcing them together, and it they did force them together. I mean, the two that were spaghetti fighting, and they end up being the two that have to go into the shell together. That's that's yeah, manufactured. Yeah, we all know yeah, it is, yeah. right? But it's what they do with it that yeah. matters. It's what they, it's where they go with it is what matters. And they 
they, they, they sell the material that they're given, I think, really quite well. It kind of ri- reminded me of The Ascent in Deep Space Nine, where Quark and Odo mm. were forced to do yeah. the shuttle mission yeah. together, where you have these two enemies, quote-unquote, that have to rely on each other because one's wounded and one needs to finish the mission, and they become unlikely friends, even though they're not really friends, but they are mm-hmm. at the end. That's the kind of saving throw that this episode gives mm-hmm. me. And I do think that they stuck the landing in this episode. I, I think that with all of its problems, and even with a rubber puppet baby reptile... <laughs> Say that five times fast. <laughs> there is the one thing that that stuck for me that I really, really wanted to feel from an episode, and that's that really honest, sincere, feel-good moment that something was reconciled, the right thing was done, and then the characters can move on with something that they've learned. Mm. And I'll get more into that with morals and meanings and messages. Okay. But how about you, John? How does this episode hold up for you? So, if so that's interesting because I, I also feel like in my initial viewing, I was just ready to completely write this off. Like there, there was nothing I liked about it. But honestly, I, I love what we do because we get to go back. We get to watch with a little more critical eye. And I really – it's usually on that second or third viewing that I anticipate and get to enjoy a scene for the strengths of those scenes, you know, and and I feel like, you know, you're looking for the resolution, you're looking for, is there a positive thing to take from this? I think, oddly enough, for me, the best scenes were still kind of the downer moments, and I mentioned them in my notes before, uh, that dinner scene with Cass and Neelix, I just feel like the acting is really powerful, really real there, and of course that scene with... Um, uh, Kess and Harry Kim, you know, her just sort of feeling all those emotions all at once. Those are not happy scenes. Those are not scenes with resolution in them. But they really speak to the reality, uh, an emotional reality that we can relate to in those characters. So I think in the end, you know, I, I feel like I also need to approach this episode with a very unfair type of criticism. Which is, and I'm going to avoid saying that I'm reaching for my writer's hat. Uh, It's just out of reach, just out of my hands. Um, But what if this episode was made today? You know, you need to accomplish the same things, right? You need to get out of this maybe hole you've, uh, this corner you've written your characters into. All these kind of childishly jealous things are coming up from the outset. We need to be done with that. So... If this had been written today, would Neelix have been so, well, childishly jealous from the outset and and stayed that way as long as he did? Would Tom Paris have caught Cass in that cliche bit at the opening and then started acting like a teenager with his friend? You know, uh, would we have actually, and to me, this is the important point, would we have actually empowered Cass to be the one to resolve this issue? And to me, that that's sort of the unfair bit of criticism that I have to bring in here because I feel like there are a lot of scenes with the men talking about their issue, their problem, their complications with the woman in this case. That's my biggest gripe with what's going on here. I, I In some sense, I can allow that we're going to have interpersonal drama. I can allow that there will be relationships and there will be jealousies and the whole gamut of emotions that come along with it. I mean, that's actually the interesting promise of what we have with Voyager being way out in the middle of nowhere and just this crew to live with each other. 
But where I think this episode ages the worst is that it falls back on the old cliche of guys just having to hash it out, go through a trauma, and then decide among themselves what's going to happen going forward. There's no real moment of realization for Neelix. He realizes that he can respect and be friends with Tom Paris, but he doesn't really realize what's wrong with himself. And on top of that, I feel like mm-hmm. there's no agency for Kess. She's not a part of the story except, again, as the object for Neelix and Paris' tension. And 20-plus years later now, I feel like this would be a very different script. And that's why I had to bring up, what would it be like today? Yeah, just to jump in here, John, there was a note that actually I didn't get to in, uh, in our discussion, but it's very relevant to mm-hmm. what you're saying. And I said the bottom line with the story is that both men are projecting their needs yeah. first. And no one is asking Kess the one question that's most important. What does she yeah. want? Yeah. That, that's... I mean, the only person is the doctor, and he only kind of pauses the question of, you don't know this because you're immature, yeah. but this is how things are. And he's the only one that's even come close to addressing her or respecting what she wants, or maybe even asking her the question so that she can figure out yeah, what she right. wants. Yeah, uh, right. Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. I'll also say, uh, say just from... You know, a production standpoint, from a pacing standpoint, the attacking enemy ship is so poorly established. It, you, blink, you blink and you'll miss it. It's just like kind of out of nowhere. Uh, so this, it, it doesn't hold up because I feel like any script like this wouldn't hold up. Even with the good collection of actors that you have, even with the relatively high production value and everything else that goes into making Star Trek in this time. And, and I know that's all harsh, but all all that said, there is a self-awareness about this episode that I do appreciate. We get Neelix and Tom off the ship. We get some organic build in their tension. We get something akin to a resolution in the end, even if it's not perfect for me or you. So I just I hope that part of it sticks. And I hope the growth that we did get here isn't over, even if we didn't get to that growth in maybe the best possible way. I'm not saying that that gives this episode a pass, but I am saying that it tempered my sort of very reactionary negative feelings about it. Now, even if we had problems with the production, what about morals, meanings, messages? Is there something that you can take from this that you feel like uh, makes it worthwhile? You know, I think that there's something to be said about the way that we approach watching these shows, John. And I know that's not for everybody, or, or maybe people just don't have the time, or maybe they just feel like they can get exactly what they needed to get out of one viewing. But after subsequent mm-hmm. viewings, especially after the first viewing, the first viewing, I really wasn't sure if there was anything in here for me at all. But the more I watched it, the more the episode kind of unfolded and grew on mm-hmm. right it mm-hmm. just kind of there were like certain things i'm like okay okay look you know what it's time to actually be a little bit more uh critical in a good way about what is being told here even though the episode as a whole didn't work for me i do believe it stuck mm-hmm. the landing when it came to the moral meaning and message and that for me that it's very simple uh at least it's simple mm-hmm. for me focus on the positive and the rest takes care of itself mm. And the positive here is what the baby alien was able to give both Tom and Neelix. It gave him a moment of pause. 
And it gave them the ability to put something else's needs above their own. Hmm. And I think that that, maybe even us as the audience, I think that this is something that we all need from time to time because we get so wrapped up in so much of our own narrative, especially Tom and Neelix, and especially Neelix, they are so concerned with everything involving their relationship with Kess that they don't, they don't even really see or know how to talk to each other or to Kess about it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, this baby alien comes into play, and everything, all of that drama, all of that angst, all of that tension just kind of gets pushed to the side almost immediately because they have to focus on the right thing. They have to focus on the positive thing. The positive thing is saving this alien life form because that's what they're there to do, right? Tom is there to do it because he's supposed to hold the oath of Starfleet, you know, to seek out strange new worlds and new civilizations and new life forms. Here mm-hmm. you go. Mm-hmm. And Neelix is like, you know what? Maybe there's something in Elogium that sparked some type of, some type of need in Neelix to be a parent. And he's projecting that paternal instinct onto this child. He's the one in this well, lack of a better term, relationship between the two that actually wants to be more hands-on with being able to save this infant child. Tom is trying to do it by the book, and Neelix is trying to push the boundaries of what is right and wrong. So they put aside the grudges. Grudges don't serve any purpose. You know, aside from feeding anger, anger just clouds judgment in a way that just completely blinds you from the tasks at hand and kind of like your purpose for doing things. And pride, we all know where pride leads you, right? It leads you right over the cliff. You know, yeah. bef- you know, the pride goes before a fall. <laughs> right. We all know that. So, but that's Neelix, though. That's Neelix, like, in the last few episodes. He's all of these things wrapped up into one very annoying character. <laughs> and Tom's not even that much better, to be yeah. honest with you, yeah. because he is, he's not nearly as toxic, but he's just as aloof and irresponsible. Mm-hmm. These are all terrible parts of our personalities and usually played off by the aliens to show how bad humanity can Mm -hmm. be you know so what i do like about this episode is that once neelix and tom resolved their issues they actually started growing as characters they actually started talking as characters and they were able to put away this these childish things these childish notions and do the right thing and i think that made them feel better i think that gave them purpose and just to sum it all up because i'm sure harry kim would have beaten me to this punch with another chinese saying (laughs) let bygones be bygones yeah and I think that's where we're at here. Uh, that's at least what I got. Um, and I don't think I really had to stretch too much for it. How about you, John? Um, yeah, I, I think we're, we're in, in a very similar place here, you know, because I, I feel like I want to give them this. Uh, and when I say them, I mean the writers, the producers, the actors, everybody who brought the emotional life of this story uh, to us. It, it's that feelings and emotions and relationships are murky tricky things and we don't always live up to our own high ideals we make mistakes we let emotions get the best of us rationality can just go right out of the airlock and i can't fault tom paris here for admitting that he has feelings that he wasn't expecting i can't fault neelix for being jealous i think we can all fault them for their bad choices and bad behavior after the fact but where this episode gets close but but maybe doesn't quite live up to giving us a message is, is that you have to eventually approach each other with honesty and humility, I would say, in there as part of it, too. Only then can you work through the unpleasant stuff. So I guess 
even the most fractured of relationships can actually be repaired if you have a moment of truth and common cause. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Persistence of Vision. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. This whole season has a thing for lizard babies, if you think about it. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 